there, and welcome to Baseball by Design. I am SportsLogos.net minor league baseball correspondent Paul Caputo, broadcasting live, as always, from the Sunday Helmet Hall of Fame in my basement in Fort Collins, Colorado. Holy smokes, this is a special episode. We're going to be talking about the Kansas City Monarchs. The current iteration of that team is an independent team that plays in the American Association of Professional Baseball out of Kansas City, Kansas. Their name, through a partnership with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, comes from the historic Negro National League team of the same name, the Kansas City Monarchs, that saw so many historic players, so many amazing players that went through that team, which, of course, played in Kansas City, Missouri. I am so very grateful right now to be joined by the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. You know him well. You hear his voice everywhere. I've been hearing it during the World Baseball Classic advertising the animated series Undeniable from Major League Baseball, which tells the story of Negro Leagues Baseball. Mr. Kendrick, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, Paul, it's my pleasure, man. Thanks so much for having me on the show. This is not the first time we've chatted. Uh, we went way back. I, I, we, we talked for like 45 minutes one time about the, the 100th anniversary logo that yeah. the Negro Leagues Museum put together, commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Negro National League. We spoke again. I tell this story all the time. You, on a Saturday, made a special trip into the museum when I was visiting Kansas City just to talk about the, the work that you do at the Negro Leagues Museum. You were wearing your golf clothes. <laughs> and uh, you, you were on your way to go golfing, and you took time out of your day to come talk to us to record some interviews for professional uh, association interviews that we were doing. So uh, it was so generous with your time, generous with your time once again this morning. Thank you again. Uh, I, I know I've already said thank you, so I'll stop. I'll stop thanking you, and I'll get into the to the questions. Um, this is a podcast about minor league baseball logos and nicknames, and so it was really interesting to me when the when I saw the Kansas City Monarchs logo and nickname being used in in contemporary baseball. And so before we get into you know that team and how it's being used right now, I'd love to just ask you. What was it about the Kansas City Monarchs and the history of Negro Leagues baseball and black baseball that made them so, such a, an iconic franchise? Just a tremendous legacy of winning baseball. I tell people all the time, Paul, that the Kansas City Monarchs were one of the greatest baseball franchises, not in black baseball history, but in baseball history. Because, man, we're talking about one losing season in their almost 40-year existence in the Negro Leagues. They sent more players to the major leagues than any other Negro League franchise. They were a model baseball franchise. And there are those who will say that the Kansas City Monarchs were the New York Yankees of the Negro Leagues. There are others who will say that the New York Yankees were the Kansas City Monarchs of Major League Baseball. Because again, it's just a proud, rich heritage of winning baseball. And Kansas City has certainly seen its fair share of great baseball, but really its origins begin with the great Kansas City Monarchs. And they were notable not only in, in the quality of their team, but there were some innovations that the team had that preceded some of them uh, that we see in Major League Baseball. Obviously, the 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 one that I'm referring to is the use of lights for night baseball. They were the first team to have to have lighting. The Monarchs owner, James Leslie Wilkinson, J.L. Wilkinson, or Wilkie, as he was affectionately known by his players at the Kansas City Monarchs, 
he debuted or really created night baseball five years before they ever played night games in the major leagues, his Kansas City Monarchs were playing under the lights. Now, our history book says that the first professional night baseball game was 1935, Crossley Field, Cincinnati, Ohio, Cincinnati Reds versus Philadelphia Phillies. Well, the history book is wrong. The first professional night baseball game, 1930, and it featured our very own Kansas City Monarchs. As I mentioned, Wilkie literally mortgaged everything he had to pioneer night baseball. Portable generated light towers. So not only could they play a night game here, Paul, they could load them up on the truck and play a night game virtually anywhere. And as I also remind our visitors, Wilkie wasn't doing this to be innovative. He was doing it for survival. You see, back then, the Negro Leagues were primarily relegated to playing on Sundays. Major League Baseball really didn't play on Sundays. And so the Negro Leagues would oftentimes rent the Major League team's ballpark and then would play that Sunday doubleheader. Black fans left church going straight to the ballpark, dressed to the nines, as they would say, to watch those games. And of course, here in Kansas City, Black churches would move their service time up an hour so that fans could make it to that Sunday doubleheader. And if you know anything about the Black church, you don't mess with service time. But when the monarchs were at home, that 11 a.m. Sunday service would start at 10 a.m. And again, we all filed out going to that Sunday doubleheader. Night baseball was even bigger than those Sunday games. And that speaks volumes because, again, Wilkie was looking for a way to get the working class fan into the ballpark. And so night baseball became the answer. And the Kansas City Call, who the, uh, the weekly African-American paper, still produces a weekly African-American paper, said that the Monarchs would do for baseball what talkies had done for the movies. And they were absolutely right. As Buck O'Neill would describe, the ball would sometimes get above the light stanchion. And the ball players were having difficulty tracing that ball, and they, you know, looking all over for the ball. The ball dropped behind them, but the fans would just double over in laughter. So yes, it was crude, but man, it was effective. It was so effective. They were filling up the ballpark for this phenomenon known as night baseball. And again, it was pioneered in the Negro Leagues by J.L. Wilkinson, who got a $50,000 loan in 1929. In the midst of the Great Depression, he convinced some banker that he was going to take night baseball all over the country. And some banker said, well, that sounds like a good idea. Here's $50,000. Now, $50,000 is pretty good money right now. But $50,000 in 1929? Oh, man, that was a whole lot of money. And how popular was night baseball? Wilkinson made his investment back in year one. Amazing. It's an amazing story. And I have to say another loss for my Philadelphia sports teams, because it's, you know, here, here, I, you know, I've always laid claim to, oh, well, I'm a Philadelphia sports fan. My Phillies were part of the first night game ever <laughs> come to learn, you know, once again, Philly loses to Kansas city again. I'm still looking my wounds from the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to mention the Super Bowl. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you mentioned the the history of winning that this this Kansas City Monarchs team had. Just just a quick list. I mean, names that that even the most casual of baseball fans will know: Ernie Banks, Cool Papa Bell, Satchel Paige, Jackie Robinson is a name some baseball fans have heard of. Uh, Hilton Smith, and of course, you mentioned already uh, Buck O'Neill. Buck O'Neill, Bullet Joe Rogan, who was the first. I would say he and Oscar Charleston were the first two superstars of the newly formed Negro National League in 1920. Charleston playing for the Indianapolis ABCs and the legendary Wilbur Bullet Joe Rogan playing here for J.L. Wilkinson's Kansas City Monarchs, where he had brought him from that great 25th infantry team, infantry team that was one of the greatest baseball teams of all time. It was a military team. And many of the early Monarch stars came off of that 25th infantry team and Bullet Rogan was one of those stars. And as I mentioned, he was, he along with Charleston were two of the first, I would say, superstars. There were a lot of stars in the Negro League, but these guys were superstars. They took it to a whole nother level. And, and I was really thrilled, Paul, that over recent times with the emergence of Shohei Atani, mm. it has helped bring a player of the magnitude of Bullet Rogan to the forefront. Because while others wanted to make the comparison of Otani and Ruth, that's the wrong comparison. The real comparison is Otani with Bullet Rogan. Yeah, Bullet Rogan was a pitcher, and he pitched his entire career in the Negro Leagues. Threw from a no-wind-up delivery, and yet his nickname was Bullet. Yeah, <laughs> no, he could get it up to the plate in a hurry. But when Bullet Rogan wasn't pitching, he played the outfield and hit cleanup for the Monarchs. Now, you don't just hit cleanup for the Kansas City Monarchs. No, you got to be able to rake if you're going to hit cleanup for the Kansas City Monarchs because the teams were always so good. That's the kind of two-way star that Bullet Rogan was. He led the Negro Leagues in stolen bases, man, when he was 38 years old. But when you looked at Bullet Rogan, you didn't see the physique of someone who would you would just naturally say was a great athlete. When I look at Shohei Atani, number one, I'm amazed at how big this young man is. You know, and so you see that athletic prowess physically in Shohei Atani. Bullet Rogan might have been 5'7", five, 5'8", weighed about 170, 175 pounds, was a tremendous athlete, however. Uh-huh, and, and one of the Negro League's great two-way stars. Absolutely, and and... I haven't mentioned this yet. I should have led with this. Uh, I've been to Kansas City three times. All three times I went to the museum, uh, it absolutely piqued an interest for me as a baseball fan and as a person who was interested in in this country's history. And yeah. and obviously, the Negro Leagues Museum tells a story that extends beyond baseball. This this interest that it piqued in me, I started reading books, right? And like I, I read the uh, Oscar Charleston biography uh, by Jeremy Beer, who was a guest I know on your podcast, Black Diamonds, which if you have not gone back and listened to the back, the back catalog of Black Diamonds, that is absolutely a, a great listen. But then I also, uh, another couple of books that I read were the, the two Buck O'Neill books. And I know that, that Buck O'Neill as a player and as a person is special to you and to the museum. Uh, obviously, his uh, autobiography, I Was Right on Time, 
and then the soul of baseball, which features you as one of the the featured players. <laughs> it was fun to read that having having met you, but the the soul of baseball by Joe Posnanski tells the story of the trip that you all took across uh, the United States when when Buck O'Neill was into his nineties. He was in his nineties at that point, yeah, right? Yeah, he was in his nineties at that point in time, and that was the summer of two thousand five. He would pass away the very next year, so he never got to read the book. And it, it was, I, I think, Paul, it should be mandatory reading for every high school student in this country. Mm. Because while it is a baseball book, it really isn't. Mm. It is more about a book about living and loving through the eyes of Buck O'Neill. And, and as you mentioned, Joe kept a diary of what, what, what now, when I look back in retrospect, was one of the most amazing summers of both of our lives, traveling the country with Buck O'Neill. Now, when we were in the throes of it, I think all three of us were lamenting how much we were on the road. But after Buck passes away the very next year, you realize, oh man, that was the greatest summer of my life. I got to hang out with my buddies, Joe Posnanski and Buck O'Neill, and it was just magical. And I've oftentimes said, when you take one of the greatest writers of the 21st century and you pair him with one of the greatest human beings to ever walk the face of this earth, then it's only natural that you're going to get something exquisite. And the soul of baseball, a road trip through Buck O'Neill's America, is just that. The spirit, the soul of this man, the graciousness, no matter what the situations might have been, he just seemed to always. I don't know, ingratiate himself with any and everybody that he would encounter along this journey. If he didn't know you, he wanted to know you. And then once you met, it was as if you had known each other all your lives. The man absolutely never met a stranger in his life. And, and Joe just beautifully captures this. He says that the book wrote itself. But Joe is a tremendous writer, tremendous storyteller, and, and so eloquent. And all of that comes across in, in this amazing capture of the spirit of Buck O'Neill. I, I, I want to get to the Kansas City Monarchs here. I need to mention that we I was we the, the the most recent time that you and I spoke in person was I was in Kansas City as part of my baseball Palooza road trip. And you just happened to be there that day. You were walking across the lobby uh, between the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and the Jazz Museum across the lobby there. And I couldn't believe our luck that, that you were there and you you came and and you spoke with with my friends and I who were were there at the at the museum uh, as part of our uh, as part of this road trip. The the final stop on this road trip was to go see the new Kansas City Monarchs. And I know that the museum uh, played an important role in in procuring the rights for them to do that and giving them permission to do that. And so. I don't want to make this too long a question here, but there's been a resurgence in interest in black baseball. And I think that the museum itself and the work that you've been doing on social media has a big part uh, to, to do with that. And I started to say this and I got derailed by one of my questions because I have so much I want to talk to you about. But uh, I, I, I'm a member of the museum. I'm wearing my my Buck O'Neill 5K t-shirt right now. I've done the <laughs> Buck O'Neill 5K. I've got a coffee mug that came with my membership uh, to the museum. So, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just one person whose interest was piqued by this first visit and and understanding the the significance of, of, of Black baseball to our country. And so now we have 
you know, I mean, you have minor league baseball is doing it's the nine program. You have a lot of teams that are doing salutes to the Negro leagues with, you know, conjuring teams from, from their cities and, and, you know, wearing branding from, from their cities, but the permanent, the team that is using the a permanent brand of the, uh, the most iconic team in Negro leagues history is the Kansas city monarchs. Was there hesitation? What, what were the conversations that went into, okay, we're going to allow this independent minor league baseball team to reflect this this iconic Negro Leagues team? What what how how difficult was that for you to hand off those reins? I was a little bit hesitant because, as you just alluded, the Monarchs is really our baby. It is our. I think out of all of the intellectual properties that we own, it may be the most significant from a brand standpoint and brand recognition standpoint. And so, yeah, there was some hesitancy when Mark Brandmeier, who bought the team at that time, they were the former, they were the Kansas City T-Bones. And Mark bought the team. And just at the time that he bought the team, a worldwide pandemic hit. And so he had a little time on his hands and he reached out to me and initiated the conversation about the possibility of rebranding the team as the Kansas City Monarchs. And uh, to be honest, Paul, I was lukewarm at best to this initial inquiry about this because, again, we are so very protective of that particular brand. And then after Mark and I got an opportunity to sit down together and meet and I was privy to his business plan. And then you started to realize just how significant a partnership this could actually be. Because as a museum, and, and I talk about this a lot, as a museum, as a history museum in particular, and a cultural institution as the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is, it is very important that we establish relevancy to this history. And so the notion of making or bringing this historic brand back to life absolutely would create a level of relevancy to this mark as we are now engaging with a new generation of baseball fans who may or may not have heard of the Kansas City Monarchs. And so this started to make a lot more sense to me the more we sat down and talked and then the business side of this partnership, because this is not a charitable situation. This is a business proposition between the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and the Kansas City Monarchs Baseball Club. And there were some measures put in that generated perpetual revenue for the museum. The success of the team means the success financially to the museum. So, you know, you had that aspect of the relationship as well. But man, every time those young athletes and many of these young athletes who are playing this independent brand of baseball now because of the reduction in the minor leagues, there are still a number of young players who have an opportunity to get to the show. As a matter of fact, our club has sent a lot of players back into major league, minor league franchises as these kids getting an opportunity to make it to the show. And so every time those young players fall, put on those pinstripes, they are channeling the spirit of Satchel Paige, of Buck O'Neill, of Willard Brown, Fulton Smith, 
Jose Mendez, all of those legendary stars who called the Monarchs home. And it's not lost on that young athlete. They understand the rich heritage that is inscribed across their chest when they put that uniform on. And, and what are we seeing now after two years of this partnership? We're seeing more kids walk around with Monarchs here than we've ever seen before. And it's lighting a fire, a flame for this history. And the team plays in Western Wyandotte County. And, and so we're seeing more folks from that area come down to visit the Negro Leagues Museum. And anytime that the ball club is on the road, they're promoting the history of the Negro Leagues. And it's just opening up this museum to an even broader audience. And as an institution like ours, that's exactly what you want to have happen. You want to try and create an environment that will engage as many people as you possibly can and get them to gain an affinity for not only the ball club, but for the history of the Negro Leagues. And we're seeing that. And so I tell people all the time, every now and then an idea comes along <laughs> and you wish it was your idea. <laughs> and probably 20 years from now, God willing, I'll lie and swear it was my idea, but it wasn't my idea. It was the idea, the epiphany of Mark Brandmeier. And I couldn't be more delighted with the partnership with our Kansas City Monarchs. And, and as fate would have it, Paul, they won the American Association Championship in their flagship season and just barely missed getting back to giving an opportunity to win another championship in year two. But we are regrouping and we are getting ready to make a run at it again in year three. Listen, hasn't Kansas City had enough championships? I mean, <laughs> give give the rest of us a chance out here, Bob. <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time. I have one more question for you, and then I'll and then I'll let you get out of here because I know you're so so busy. And I'm like I said, so grateful that you took time to chat with me again today. The story that the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum tells is not one, and this this was a, the surprise for me when I attended. Right, like as a as a white baseball fan. I thought the story was going to be it was a hard, difficult, dark time until integration. Yeah. And that's not the story that the museum oh. tells. The museum tells a story of successful Black-owned businesses and thriving Black communities that supported these amazing athletes and these amazing teams. And I think that that message about you know what the Negro Leagues were and in particular what the Kansas City Monarchs meant to to their community is such an important one that this that that the museum has gotten out into the into the public do you find that that's a mainstream message now or are visitors still surprised to to learn that this is that this the story of the negro leagues from the 20s through you know yeah. the, the mid 40s was one of of positivity and you know obviously hardships and 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 so much unfairness and and injustice but the the teams themselves were success stories. The businesses and the communities were success stories. Is it surprising to many visitors that that's the story that you tell? Oh, very much so. Because I do think the moral majority of those who come to visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum are not unlike yourself upon your first visit. Mm -hmm. You kind of assume that you're going to be introduced to a very kind of sad, somber kind of story. And as I remind our guests, the circumstances that dictated a need 
for a Negro League, they are sad and sorrowful. Segregation represented a horrible chapter in this country's history, a shameful chapter in this country's history. But the story of the Negro Leagues themselves, there's nothing sad or sorrowful about them, they are about that story, because this is about rising above the adversity. You won't let me play with you in the major leagues. I'll just create a league of my own. And when you stop to think about that, that is the American way. Yeah, so while America was trying to prevent them from sharing in the joys of her so-called national pastime, it was the American spirit that allowed them to persevere and prevail. And that's really the story that we celebrate. It, and, and that's exactly what it is. It is a celebration. It is the celebration of the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. So yes, you see the backdrop of American segregation here, but you really witness again, how they triumphed over that adversity, how they helped change the game of baseball, but more importantly, they helped change this country for the better. And so when you leave here, you do, you leave here cheering the power of the human spirit. And, and so it's an awakening for so many of our visitors. For us, it's almost a given that you're going to come here and you're going to meet some of the greatest athletes to ever put on a baseball uniform. By the time you walk away from this experience, you do walk away with, I think, a much deeper, richer appreciation for really just how special this country really is. Because story of the Negro Leagues could have only happened in America. Uh, again, while it was anchored in the ugliness of American segregation, out of segregation came this wonderful story of triumphant conquest known as the Negro League. Well, I I often wonder what baseball would look like, what our country would look like if Rube Foster's vision of merging the Negro Leagues and Major League Baseball had happened instead of this painful one team at a time, one player at a time integration over a decade and a half. So, Bob Kendrick, thank you so much for for joining me. This was such a thrill to to speak with you and such a highlight for me personally and Every time I've gotten to go to the museum, every time I've gotten to speak with you, it's been an absolute thrill. You're so generous with your time. Every time you come on TV on a commercial or something, I'm like, that's Bob Kendrick. Bob Kendrick and I, I know Bob. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's exciting, Paul. It, it yeah. really is. And, you know, the things that we've announced already this year with the animated series, first ever animated series on Negro Leagues Baseball called Undeniable, the animated shorts that we did in, with part, in partnership with Major League Baseball. And of course, the, the news of the Negro League's inclusion in MLB, the show 23. And both of these, both of these kind of innovative approaches are going to connect us with a new generation. And that's what we're so excited about. And hopefully they will fall in love with the Negro League and hopefully become future museum goers and future museum supporters. So all of this kind of is a, a continuation and a celebration and acknowledgement of the significance of the Negro League. So I appreciate the opportunity, any chance I get to talk about the work that we're doing here at the Negro League Baseball Museum. And thank you for your continued advocacy and support of this museum.
Well, it's the the museum has done such an amazing job of keeping this important story alive, and uh, I, I've spoken with Kiana Sinks, uh, who I know represents you guys on on social media so so well. Such an active social media presence, so active in all of these programs and and new innovative things that you're doing. Bob, I've kept you way longer than I said I was going to. I apologize for that. You're on Twitter at NLBM Prez. Prez with that's a- right, P R E Z. Okay, and then the museum itself. Uh, well, I'll put this on the, in the show notes is NLB Museum KC. Bob, thank uh-huh. you so much. Look forward to seeing you pop up on my TV every 20 minutes uh, during the baseball season. Uh, congratulations on your continued success. Thank you again for all that you do for baseball and for joining me on Baseball by Design. Paul, oh, that my absolute pleasure, man. It's great to see you and thank you. <laughs> all right, everyone, welcome back. I'm joined right now for the weekly tradition of Dan Simon's Studio Simon Stumpers. Dan, I just want to start by saying what how psyched I am to have just gotten the opportunity to speak with with Bob Kendrick, who is rapidly becoming one of the the icons of of baseball and uh, American culture right now. This episode is is about the fact that the Kansas City Monarchs, the iconic Negro Leagues team, has had its identity reprised with permission from the, the Negro Leagues Museum in an American Association independent minor league team. So what a what a cool episode this is for me, and uh, I'm glad you're here to uh, you know to to bring one of your Studio Simon Stumper trivia questions to uh, to wrap us up. Well, for sure, um, Bob Kendrick is is a tremendous storyteller. Um, there are people that are just they're born with a gift and he is, he is, he was, he was gifted that way. Um, Like you're speaking of the Negro leagues, like Buck O'Neill, there's, Mm -hmm. there are just people who are just so compelling um, and can, can tell a story just in a way that other people can. And I can't wait to, to meet Bob Kendrick in person myself. You had the chance to do that. So um, good day for you. I've I've met Bob a couple of times, and most recently it was during my baseball palooza trip, and we built the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum into our agenda, and it just so happened that he was there that day. And you know, there there are other times I've met him, and it was you know I knew that it was coming, but this was one where here's this you know van full of goofy dudes you know on a on a baseball road trip, and you know Bob Kendrick goes walking by, and he came and just held court and told stories and and was so engaging with our whole group just spontaneously so anyhow it's uh this is uh, i'm very I'm very grateful to to him for joining me and uh grateful to you for all that you do for the baseball by design podcast, including the studio Simon stumpers and so we have i believe another trivia question to wrap up this week. Okay, of course, this episode is is um, primarily about the minor league team now playing as the Kansas City Monarchs. But for sure, as we all know from this episode, that was um, uh, that name came directly from the Negro Leagues, Kansas City Monarchs. So I'm going to ask a question based on the Negro Leagues, Kansas City Monarchs, jersey uh well they had a number of different jerseys but the one that they had with a large one might even say oversized k and c on either on the chest on either side of the placket um the one that was worn by jackie robinson in the one season he played in the negro leagues um it's certainly one of the more iconic to me at least negro leagues jerseys 
Um, and so with that in mind, in 1902, so Paul, you'll have to go back to your early years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which major league baseball team was the first to use large letters on either side of the placket in this manner um, on their home jersey? Was it A, the team currently known as the Boston Red Sox, B, the team currently known as the New York Yankees, or C, the team currently known as the Baltimore Orioles? Be, I, I'll repeat that, but I want to I want to specify that the reason I, I referred to each one as the team currently known as is because back in 1902, virtually all the teams did not have a, a nickname. They were just known by their city name. One of the, the few exceptions would have been the Philadelphia Athletics, huh? but most teams were just known as, for instance, Boston, you know, or, or, or New York, the New York Baseball Club. Mm -hmm. uh, so their names back then, they might not have even have had a name. So the teams, the, your choice is A, B, and C in order are the teams formerly currently known as the Boston Red Sox, the New York Yankees, or the Baltimore Orioles that had a letter on either side of the placket of, of their home jersey. Okay. I think that I know this one. I'm going to say it was C, the Baltimore Orioles, because... That team originated, if I'm getting my old-timey baseball history correct, that team originated in New York and would have had the NY. That's my that's my answer. I hope that I'm right on that, but that that is what is jumping right to mind, the team currently known as the Baltimore Orioles. Well, please don't take the fact that that's not the answer oh. as as <laughs> I know everyone, whenever doing trivia, who doesn't like to get the answer right? But you're, you're, we're going to talk about what you just talked about because it does factor in there. But okay, first of all, the correct answer is the team that is currently known as the Boston Red Sox. Oh, there were two teams in Boston at the time. And back then there was, well, we still have the American League and the National League, but back then they weren't part of quote unquote major league baseball. They were separate leagues. So you, there were two teams in Boston and to differentiate itself from the National League Boston club, the American League Boston club called itself the Boston Americans. And the, the Boston National League club had Boston, B-O-S-T-O-N, across their jerseys. So to differentiate from that, the American League Club had an Old English large B and an Old English large A on either side of the placket on the front. Now, the thing you were talking about, what about the Yankees originating as the Baltimore Orioles, that is true. Um, today, but I reversed it. 1901 and 1902, there was a Baltimore Orioles team. That team, I guess, was doing poorly, so they folded. And there is a question regarding whether that team just went away and an, and an expansion franchise was granted to New York, or if that Baltimore Orioles team became the New York Yankees. Uh, hopefully you see there's a difference there. Um, but 
the ownership was different. So the owners of the Baltimore Orioles for those two years were, were not the owners of the team in New York. So the team that then went to play in New York, which was sometimes, as with the, the Boston Americans, sometimes referred to as the New York Americans and also more popular or commonly known as the New York Highlanders. Oh. Now, they had a large N and Y on, on their jerseys, but they did not start playing until the next season. This was 1902 we're talking about. They didn't start playing until 1903. So they were a year behind the Boston Americans. Now, as a bit of a, to just to potentially possibly confuse this even more, today's Baltimore Orioles were the St. Louis Browns until 1953 when they left St. Louis and moved to Baltimore. Hmm. So the St. Louis Browns were playing in 1902 and they did have similarly large lettering on their jerseys, but it was only on the road jersey. They, on their, it, strangely enough, their home jerseys were blank. Their road jerseys had a large S on one side a little T actually on the placket itself. That's that thing right in the middle where the buttons are and a large L on the other side. So it wasn't on the home Jersey and they didn't just have one letter on each side. They also had a little letter, the T for Saint um, in, in the middle. So that one didn't count, but had you said the St. Louis Browns, I would have, I would have given you that on a technicality. Um, <laughs> But your thinking was was right on because the Yank, the, the team that's now known as the Yankees, were right there, and in 1903 were were doing that on their on their jerseys. So kudos to you for knowing that. Well, I don't know. I I feel like I got all twisted around here. I I you know I don't think I would have guessed Boston again for the second week in a row. My third guess was the correct answer because I was uh, I, I was going to go. Uh, Baltimore was my first guess. New York was my second guess, and then Boston was my third guess. Dan. Thank you once again. This has been a special episode for me. That was as deep a dive as I have seen on uh, on on Studio Simon Stumpers. My average has taken a, a hit the last couple of weeks here, uh, or rather, not a hit. So I got. I'm going to hope to bounce back next week. Thank you again, Dan. We'll see you next week. Uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, this this is a special episode, and I'm 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 proud to have been part of it. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Dan. <laughs>